Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for taking time to listen to our podcast today. It's 2016, and so we're heading into a new year, and so hopefully... Uh, you're ready to begin the year focusing on Christ and focusing on His plan for your life. You know, lately I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts that have dealt with the issue of election or predestination. Uh, Dr. James White on his Alpha and Omega Ministries website, The Dividing Line, and his podcast uh, dealt or right before Christmas with uh, Malcolm Yarnell. A professor at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth and his view of corporate election. Uh, J.D. Hall on Pulpit and Pen just the other day uh, talked about this guy named Phil Pringle and his view of election and predestination. Uh, Many of you know I've done some podcasts with Leighton Flowers out of Texas with his Soteriology 101 podcast, and he's been really uh, trying to clarify the traditional Southern Baptist view, non-Calvinistic view of corporate election. And so I want to jump into the mix. And so what I want to do in this podcast is really interact with some of those other views, but I want us to look at the text, and I also want to take us on a history, a history lesson, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention, the convention that I'm in, and a lot of my listeners are, even if you're not Southern Baptist, this is of great interest because of the trajectory of how a denomination that started in 1845 with strong Calvinistic Uh, theology has morphed over time to embrace not only just non-Calvinistic, but in the 60s and 70s and 80s, actually liberal theology, and then the conservative resurgence. And so what I want to do is I just want to tackle the issue of predestination and election, especially from uh, just a a few verses from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. So let's just read the text, and we'll look at some other texts, but I primarily want to focus on this passage of Scripture for today's podcast. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And it goes on and on. As many of you know, that's the longest sentence in the Greek language in the Bible that Paul gives there in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1. So we're just looking at a small section there. And really the structure of that passage is Trinitarian. It deals with God the Father and His electing grace. Then it moves to Jesus Christ the Son and His redemptive grace in dying on the cross. And then it rounds out with the Holy Spirit and His um, sanctifying or or sealing grace of, uh, of sealing us for the day of redemption. And then there's the repetition three times of to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of God's grace. And so you kind of get that uh, threefold uh, to the praise of His grace, and you also get the Trinity in there. And so we've got a text before us that teaches the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of choosing whatever you want to use. And I want to begin 
by reading the, the, the crazy, unbiblical, way out words uh, of Phil Pringle. I don't know much about Phil Pringle, not much at all. I just uh, was, was introduced to him when I was listening to the Pulpit and Pen podcast the other day. I guess he's some big-time um, pastor out of Australia. I think maybe he's affiliated with Hillsong. Uh, but I went to his blog, and, and this is the, the wording that he wrote. And so I want you just to interact with his words to start out this discussion on election. So I'm quoting Phil Pringle. Quote, Every single person ever born and ever will be born has been predestined to be adopted by God, to be born of God according to his good pleasure. He takes no pleasure in anyone perishing. It is neither his will nor his pleasure for anyone that he predestined to be his child to perish. And he's predestined everyone to be his child. Now that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Because that statement right there, number one, is not biblical, but it just logically doesn't make sense. If God has predestined everyone according to the good pleasure of His will, then would not every single person go to heaven and there would be no hell because every single person that's predestined would go to heaven? Unless he believes that God does something in his predestination according to his will, but then God's will can be thwarted by the free choices of men. Not even Arminians believe that every single person born and ever will be born has been predestined. They have the foreknowledge view that says God looks down through the corridors of time. He looks down into the future. He has foreknowledge of what sinners are going to do. And if God sees with his omniscient foreknowledge a sinner accepting Christ for salvation, then on the basis of that condition being met, God then elects that person to salvation. If God sees that person not choosing Christ for salvation, he simply passes that person by and does not elect them. So even in the classical Arminian view, God does not predestine every single person. He only predestines who he sees in his divine foreknowledge will trust Christ for salvation. And so that's really just a crazy statement out there. Uh, I'm not going to interact much more with that because that really reflects a lack of thinking lack of engagement with the biblical text, and really just um, outside the bounds of, of even classic Arminianism, definitely outside the bounds of Reformed, historic, Calvinistic thought, and even really outside the bounds of the third view, the, the corporate view of election that is um, espoused by Leighton Flowers and others who are of the uh, traditional non-Calvinistic Southern Baptists. And so really, you you have three views of election out there. And we've talked about this before. You've got the Reformed Calvinistic view. You've got the classic Arminian view. And then you've got the the corporate election view. And so I really want to deal more with the corporate election view because that seems to be the view that is really being pushed among Southern Baptists, especially by Leighton Flowers, uh, Malcolm Yarnell, others that are in the more non-Calvinistic, traditionalist Southern Baptist camp uh, coming out of professors at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, out of New Orleans Seminary, and places like that. And so um, I I really enjoy listening to Leighton Flowers. Many of you probably do, and, and he tends to really espouse this corporate view of election and and basically talks about how the the in Christ 
that, that, that is used there in Ephesians really is talking about that, that Christ is the elect one and that God elected a plan of salvation and that the way you get into Christ is when you personally use your free will to believe and then you become one of the elect. So God does not actually personally or individually elect any particular person to salvation before uh, time. God elects Christ as the elect one. God elects a plan that whoever's in Christ is then numbered among the elect. And so let's just look at the text. Let's let the text of Scripture speak for itself. So we don't want to come to this with a, with a reform bias. We don't want to come to this with the classic Arminian bias. We don't want to come to this with the traditional non-Calvinistic Southern Baptist bias. We want to come to this with a biblical bias, if, if we can use that word. So, so let's just look at the text. Paul starts out with this blessed. Paul is going to list really all, not, not comprehensively, but, but really a lot of the major blessings of salvation. He says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So as a result of our salvation, of what the Father has done, what Christ has done, what the Holy Spirit has done, there are numerous blessings of our salvation. And then Paul goes on to list and to explain, not comprehensively, not every single spiritual blessing, but for the sake of of Paul's purpose in, in the opening chapter of Ephesians to lay forth what these blessings are. And the very first blessing that he addresses is in chapter as in verse 4, which is God's choosing, God's election. And so you've got there, even as He, that would be the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now let's just look at the grammar to understand what's going on. Who is doing the choosing? God the Father is doing the choosing. And and the word there that's used for choosing is in the aorist middle. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in a lot of Greek because a lot of my listeners may not understand the original languages, but it's very important that Paul uses an aorist middle. Now, aorist basically is past tense action. That God did the choosing in the past. God chose past tense. We understand that. But it's a middle, it's in the middle voice, which means that according to Wallace, who's a a Greek grammar expert, and you look at a lot of grammarians who deal with the original text, the middle could really be translated, God chose us for himself. God acts on his own interest. You could really translate that God chose us for himself in Christ. And that makes it very personal. That makes it very intimate that God is choosing us for himself. God is making this choice, and we'll get to the reason why God does that, okay? We'll get to the reason why God does that, but we can at least lay our cards on the table and say, God does not choose us for himself because there's anything inherently good in us that moves or makes God choose us. 
that would be, uh, the text does not say anywhere in that passage in Ephesians that God actually chooses us because he sees something good in us. He foresees faith in us. He foresees that we were going to trust him. The only thing that the text says, and it's at the end of verse 5, we might as well get there because I've already, I've already addressed that. The basis for God's choosing and the basis for God's predestinating is according to the purpose of his will. That's all the text says. It's according to the good pleasure or the purpose of God's will. And so that's all Paul tells us. He doesn't expound upon it. And we know from the rest of the scriptures, especially from the rest of the book of Ephesians, especially when you go to chapter 2, it talks about the state of a lost person, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of God. We were hostile. We were children of wrath. We followed the course of this world. We were, we were um, enslaved to Satan. And so because of our fall in Adam, because of our sin, there's nothing good that God looks down and says, hey, you you, you people are so good, you're inherently good, or I see that you're going to trust in me, I foresee that as the basis. All that Paul says is according to the purpose of his will. So we can say it this way, why does God choose sinners to be saved and the answer is because it's his will it's according to the good purpose of his will because god has the right to do it god's not obligated to do it god's not somehow um, beholden to us that he has to do it we can't manipulate god to make him do it god simply did it because he has the sovereign right to do it As Paul would say in Romans 9, God has mercy on who he has mercy. God has compassion on who he has compassion. It's according to the purpose of his will. It's his will. And so you may say, well, how come some are chosen and others are not? It's according to the purpose of God's will. And sometimes there's the secret counsel of God's will that we we can't pry open heaven and look into the mind of an omniscient, omnipotent, powerful God and understand why he does all that he does. Paul simply gives us the reason. It's according to the purpose of his will. Now, it's an interesting quote by Charles Spurgeon um, that, that I often go back to. And Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So we get back to this whole idea that it's according to the purpose of God's will. Now what does God have the right to do? Does not God have the right to do whatever he wants. Psalm 33, 8-11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Or Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all the deeps. 
Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Or Job 42, 2, one of my favorite passages from Job. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I mean, we could go on and on and talk about God's sovereign right to do what God sovereignly wants to do. And all Paul says here is that this election, this predestination, is not based upon foreseen faith. It's not based upon merit within us. It's not based upon anything in us that would move God to do that because we're sinners separated from Him because of our enslavement to sin. It's simply according to the purpose of His will because God has the right to do it, and God will do it, and God has done that. So God chose uh, us. Okay, so God is the one who's the object. The verb is chose, and it's in the aorist past tense. It's in the middle voice. God chose for himself us. There's a direct object, us. Who's God choosing? God is choosing us. It doesn't say God is choosing Christ. It doesn't say God is choosing a group of people to, that, that, that are going to believe in him someday. It's very specific. God chose us. Well, then who's the us? Well, Paul, obviously, in the meaning context, is talking about himself and the Ephesian believers, the church to which he's writing. But by extension, when we talk about the, the inspired text of Scripture that, that has application to us, it, it's not just to the original audience, but it's to Christians of all times. God chose us. So it's, it's, a, it's a direct object of God's choosing is the us. In Him. Now, that's where the... That's where the rub comes with the corporate election people because they look at that, God chose us in Him. They look at that and say, aha, the in Him there, the in Christ, and they will, they're correct in saying that in Christ or in Him is used probably I think it's like 14 or 15 times in that passage of Scripture. They will say that the sphere in which Jesus, or the sphere in which we are elected is in Christ. And so Christ is the elect one. There's the plan of salvation. The plan is that we are in Christ. And the way that you get in Christ is when you believe. When you believe, you get in Christ. And I would agree with that. When you have faith in Christ, you are united to Christ in faith. You're justified. You're sanctified. You are the imputed righteousness of Christ is given to you as a gift. And and so there's that mystical union of you being in Christ and Christ being in you that comes at, at your conversion. But notice the choosing here is in Christ. So basically what Paul's saying is that when God made his choice, it was not outside of Christ. It's always tied to Christ. It's tied to Christ's work on the cross. And you could really make an argument here that the only reason that God can choose us is because Christ would specifically die for us. And that's a different argument for limited atonement. But God chose us for himself in Christ. When? When did it happen? It happened before the foundation of the world. So this is not an election that happens in time where Basically, it's like an ongoing process. I mean, the Greek verb is past tense. It's, it's in the middle voice. God chose us for himself. And then Paul gives us the time. It happened before 
the foundation of the world. So in eternity past, before the world was created, in heaven, in the council of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before anything was created, God sovereignly made the decision to choose a people for himself. Now, what is the purpose of our being chosen? Paul answers that. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I've heard some people say, well, this is not really talking so much about salvation choosing. It's talking more about your sanctification. That this is really talking about God is choosing you to be sanctified, to be holy and blameless before Him. I even think Leighton Flowers uses that a lot. That we should, that God is choosing us to, for, for sanctification, not necessarily for justification. But I think there's a misunderstanding of categories. Holy and blameless before Him can mean sanctification, but I think it means positional justification or positional holiness. You see, there's two types of holiness, blamelessness in the Bible. There is the positional sanctification or the positional holiness that God imparts to us at the moment of our regeneration. When God causes us to be born again through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, there are many passages of Scripture that speak about the fact that at that moment, we become positionally holy and blameless before Him. That that's our condition. That's our standing. That, that is our, that, that that's who we are in Christ. That's the positional holiness. Now, there's also the progressive holiness, the whole idea that as we grow in Christ, we are going to have degrees of holiness. We're going to be some, you know, holier at some times and other times. It's that progression, and that's talking more about sanctification. I think in the context here of Ephesians, he's, Paul is talking about a positional holiness or blamelessness that comes when God sets us apart as holy at our salvation. So the purpose of our election, the purpose of God choosing us in Him, for Himself, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, is that we would be positionally holy and blameless before Him. And we also know that at the end of time, God is going to present us, or Christ is going to present us holy and blameless before the throne of God. We, we see that um, in, in Jude. But it's interesting. You've got other passages of Scripture that speak about God's choosing, God's predestinating, God's election. Now, I've often had people say to me over the years, I don't believe in predestination, or I don't, I don't believe in election. And I would say to them very kindly, well, you know, I'm very sorry that you had that view, but um, you really can't read the Bible and say you don't believe in predestination because the word predestination shows up. It's right there in verse 5. The word choosing shows up. The word electing shows up. These are biblical terms. And so you can't just point blank say, I don't believe in that. The real issue is which view of election do you hold to? Do you hold to the biblical view, which I believe is the Calvinistic true view? Do you hold to the classical Arminian view? Do you hold to the corporate election? Which view do you hold to? But you can't just flat out say, I don't believe in predestination. There's, there's other verses that corroborate the whole idea that God chooses sinners for salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. through For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You've got the same Greek word there that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians. God has chosen you. First Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us. It's just a different direct object. In, in, in Ephesians, Paul is using the third person, us. In Thessalonians, he's using the second person, you. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because, here's the purpose again, why did God save us? Why did God call us? Why did God choose us? Because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Well, that's interesting. When did God give us this grace? When did God save us? When did God, in God's mind, when did, he, when, when did this um, redemption happen? Well, it says before the ages began, and it was in Christ. And so, again, Paul says in 2 Timothy, God chose us. God gave us this grace. God worked this purpose out for us. And again, it's in Christ. It's not separate from Christ. It's in Christ. When did it happen? Before the ages began. Now, some of you may have heard a preacher say something like this, like, a, like at a revival. Uh, maybe you grew up um, and maybe you heard this. Maybe you're from more of a Nazarene or a, or a Pentecostal background, or even maybe you've heard this in Baptist circles. You've heard the pastor say something like this. If you're here today and you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you just ask Jesus into your heart. And when you ask Jesus into your heart, when you nail it down, when you come down to the front, God's going to write your name in the Lamb's book of life. Now, if you're an Arminian, you may say, God will write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, but he may use a pencil because he may erase it. <laughs> That's just kind of a pot shot there. But, but the whole idea is, when you trust Christ for salvation, then your name is written into the Lamb's Book of Life. So your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life until you make the choice to trust Christ for salvation. But what does the book of Revelation say? Revelation 13, 8 it's talking about the beast. It's in the context of worshiping the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. That's the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written, when? Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So when were our names, if we're among the elect, written in the Lamb's book of life? They were written before the foundation of the world, which corroborates what Paul says here. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God gave us his grace before the ages began. Now in verse 5, you see there's, there's a difference between election and predestination. The whole idea of election is more God's choice. God makes a sovereign choice to choose sinners for his own predestination is more the destination or the um the sphere in which that choice is going to be worked out so in verse five in love he predestined us so again who's doing it god god is the actor god is the subject what's he doing he predestined again past tense us for what for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So, 
the choosing is to be holy and blameless. The predestination is for adoption. And some people, I've heard Leighton Flowers and others say that really adoption is not something you experience yet. Adoption is something that you experience when you get to heaven, when you're fully adopted. I disagree with that. I I do believe there's an already and not yet aspect to it, but we are adopted into God's family the moment that we trust Christ for salvation. We are adopted. Now, we don't get the fullness of what that adoption means until we get glorified in heaven, but I don't think adoption is something that we wait for in the future. Now, I know in Romans it talks about we wait for the adoption of our bodies. I think he's talking there about glorification, the full uh, resurrected body that we'll receive in the new heavens and the new earth. But, but spiritually here, Paul says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've already been blessed with this. And so adoption is something that we have already been blessed with. And so when God chooses us, it's to be holy and blameless, to have this positional holiness of being acceptable in God's sight because of Christ. When did it happen? Before the foundation of the world. And then in love, he predestined us for what? For adoption, to be adopted into God's family. And then again, what's the purpose of all this? According to the purpose of his will or according to the good pleasure of his will. And so we see very clearly that God in his sovereignty before the foundation of the world, chooses sinners to be saved. And then this passage does not speak about reprobation in the sense that God does not choose others to be saved, but you have to make the the assumption, the theological truth, that if not everybody's going to heaven, If there are people that are dying and going to hell, if there are people that are going to experience God's judgment, then God has not chosen everybody to be saved. For if He had done that, everybody would go to heaven. And we know the rest of the Bible doesn't teach that. So we have to assume from the full teaching of the Bible that God chooses many to be saved and the rest He simply leaves in their sin, passes them over, and allows them to experience the just punishment for their sins now one of the caricatures against calvinists is say you know you guys are the chosen frozen you believe that god you know just elects this small number to be saved and again i have to combat this all the time nowhere in the bible does it ever give us the number as a matter of fact it tells us it's a number no man can count you will find in Revelation chapter 7 that it's, it's this number that no man can count, a multitude of every tribe, tongue, language, and people. And so uh, Abraham looked up at the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and God said, that's going to be your offspring. So we know that it's many. We don't know the fixed number, but we know that it's, it's myriads upon myriads. And so here's the doctrine of election. God and His sovereignty, because He has the right to, because He's sovereign, because it's according to His good purpose and pleasure, He sovereignly chooses to elect and predestine many sinners individually, not because of anything that He sees in them, not because of any merit in them, not because of foreseen faith, but He individually elects them. When does He do this? Before the foundation of the world, so that they will be holy and blameless and adopted into His family. That's the the Calvinistic and I believe the biblical view of 
of, of the doctrine of election. But interestingly, historically, when you look at Southern Baptist history, this doctrine, the Calvinistic doctrine of election, was what in 1845 when the convention was started in, in, in the late 1800s, it was pretty much the, a given that this would be the view of election. I mean, the abstract of principles, um, actually it's adopted, it was adopted in 1858 as the original charter of Southern Seminary, the seminary that I'm going to be graduating from really shortly here with my, with my doctorate. Um, basically, you know, seminary professors today have to sign off on the abstract of principles as well as at Southeastern. And this is what the abstract of principles says about the doctrine of election. It says this, Election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but of His mere mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. And I have no agree- disagreements with that. That's, that's the view I, I hold to. Now, the Baptist Faith and Message first came out in 1925. Then there was the revised 1963, and then there was the 2000. So right now, most Southern Baptist churches operate under the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, if that's their, their doctrinal statement. And so we've really had three official doctrinal statements that have been voted on by the convention. And really, in the section on election from 1925 to 1963 to 2000, there was no real change. Uh, This is basically what it says. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. That's kind of a politically correct statement to me, if you will. It, it, It really doesn't clearly clarify the doctrine of election. It's God's gracious purpose. Yes, it's God's purpose. We look at that in Ephesians. He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. Yeah, we believe that. It's consistent with the free agency of man. What does that really mean? There's no real further explanation of that. And it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. Okay, you can take that any way you want to. Uh, Then the means in connection with the end. Um, It's the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. So election is unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. I wouldn't have any problem with that. The problem with the Baptist faith and message is that it's vague. It doesn't really clearly put meat on the bones to clarify the doctrine of election. And that's why I, I, I don't have anything necessarily against the Baptist faith and message. We as elders in our church right now, are, are, we, our church holds to the Baptist faith and message 2000. Um, it's, it's a fine doctrinal statement. It's conservative. It's evangelical. It believes in inerrancy. I have no major qualms with the statement of faith. I just don't think it's comprehensive enough to address issues that are theologically important. And for example, this whole section on election is too vague for me. Um, this is another podcast, but the, the topic on man's guilt and man's original sin is too vague and weak for me in the Baptist faith and message. There is no doctrine of adoption in the Baptist faith and message. Uh, the, the section on justification is pretty weak. Uh, they don't have anything that talks about really much about God's providence 
or the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. There's there's some things missing in the Baptist faith and message. Now, there's some good things in it that some of the older confessions didn't have that relate to modern-day issues like pornography and abortion and things like that. But I want to show you how our theology has changed. In the early days of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, there were some some big names um, where Calvinism held sway. Um, Three big names, Patrick Hughes-Mell, John L. Dagg, and James P. Boyce. And and James P. Boyce was really the author of the Abstract of Principles. And so these three men really were the popular not even popular, but really the, um, the, the, the chief theologians and spokesmen for the Southern Baptist Convention. And so, um, for example, uh, Patrick Hughes Mell believed in the Calvinistic view of, of, of uh, election. He says, the, the covenant encompassed the unconditional election of some to salvation, the passing over of some who are ordained for damnation, the limited extent of Christ's atonement for sin, the effectual or irresistible calling of the elect by the Spirit of God, and the perseverance of all true saints to final glory. That was Mel's view of Calvinism. And so he, he articulated, basically, right there, the, the five points of, of Calvinism. Um, he would say that the non-elect are simply passed by. They're permitted to follow the inclinations of their own hearts. God actively predestines no one to damnation. Those not chosen are simply passed by without any invincible influence adequate to make them willing in the day of His power. Obviously, that's what we would believe, that God does not work in the hearts of the non-elect to make them more sinful than they already are as a result of the fall. God simply passes them by, lets them go by the inclination of their own hearts. John L. Dagg published the famous Manual of Theology in 1858. Um, Really, it was the first systematic arrangement of Christian doctrine published by a Southern Baptist. Um, It was the first systematic textbook to be used at Southern Seminary when it opened in um, 1859. And he would argue that the Father would elect some to salvation the Son would provide redemption for those elect, and the Spirit would call them to their privilege. God's decision to elect some to salvation is decided in eternity, not in time, is based on divine grace, not conditioned upon anything human. It is centered on the specific persons chosen, not on their faith or works. Again, what we've been arguing all along. And then, you know, James Pettigrew Boyce, James P. Boyce, uh, we've pretty much read the abstract of principles that he, he authored. And so he was really the chief um, Calvinistic theologian that uh, systematized really what we have today in our, in, in our seminaries that they have to, to, to sign. Now, something happened in the 20s, 30s, 40s with the election of E.Y. Mullins as the new president of Southern Seminary. And you can do a Google search on E.Y. Mullins, and I think David Dockery has written about him, as well as Dr. Moeller um, at Southern, have written about how his, his view of theology really changed the trajectory of the Southern Baptist Convention, and especially Southern Seminary. Let me just give you a little bit of church history here. Um, in, the, in the late 1800s, and really even before that, especially in Germany and in Western Europe, 
Uh, there was the enlightenment. There was a movement afoot that began to deny the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. There was a movement that denied the miracles. Uh, there was this um, high, you know, called form criticism or higher criticism, where where basically uh, they would want to demythologize the. Um, the Bible saying that the miracles weren't really true. And so this whole spirit of liberalism made its way over to America. And, and really, it was E.Y. Mullins that I think imbibed some of this theology that really got him off base biblically. One of the things that you will notice about E.Y. Mullins, if you go back and read, is that uh, his view of, the, of, of humanity, his view of, of man and sin, was really more influenced by um, the Enlightenment than by the Scripture's definition of total depravity, of Adam's inherited guilt. And I think when he got off base on his view of the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, it led him down a path to make some major compromises. And so um, he was... You know, basically, uh, the president of Southern Seminary in the 20s, and he helped architect the 1925 uh, Baptist faith and message. And so he basically argued for a modified Calvinism, a modified Calvinism. And so when it came to divine sovereignty, when it came to predestination, um, basically, here's what he said, um, quote, um, the Calvinistic God had become little more than a predestinating omnipotence, capricious lightning, a meteor God, smiting one and saving another without regard to moral law. And so um, he, he saw God as, as the sovereign omnipotence or as sovereign omniscience instead of sovereign fatherhood. He, he wanted to see God more as a loving father than as um, maybe a God of, of righteous anger, and wrath. And so he basically modified his views. Um, he tried to redefine Southern's view or the historic Southern Baptist view of the doctrine of, of election. And basically, um, he raised six questions and answered each one of them in turn. And so let's, let's look at these these questions that he asks, that he asks and answers, and you can really understand how the trajectory of the doctrine of election changed under his leadership. And he was very influential. I mean, he held sway. Um, he was the ultimate Southern Baptist statesman, and really, his theology, his leadership, uh, led the trajectory, I believe, toward uh, the liberalism of the Southern Baptist Convention and toward moving away from the doctrines of grace, Calvinism. So here's his questions. Question number one. His question, why are some people chosen and others are not? Answer, God's grace is operative in one case beyond the degree of its action in the other. Okay. Question number two. Does God's election force a person to believe the gospel, or is the person still free to choose? Answer. God's grace is not irresistible, as a physical force is irresistible. Grace is moral and spiritual. A person's decision to believe the gospel is initiated by God, but in such a way that the choice remains a free, self-determined act. That's a move away from monergism to synergism. 
That's almost semi-Pelagianism. God initiates, God woos, God helps. Maybe it's prevenient grace, but ultimately the choice remains a free, self-determined act. In other words, God does not have to regenerate a dead sinner in order for them to truly believe. Number three, can sovereign election and the free choice of persons ever be reconciled? And interestingly, Mullins gave a negative answer, claiming that the two issues in question were ultimate forms of experience and of thought, and therefore could not be reconciled. They must be regarded as paradoxes, not as contradictions. So he kind of weaseled his way out of that. Question number four, why is election God's means of saving people? And Mullins replied that God chose election because his range of possible methods was limited by the moral nature and purpose of his own kingdom. Were it not a moral kingdom, he could force himself upon his human creatures. But because his kingdom is essentially moral, God follows a slow method for affecting his plan of salvation lest he violate human freedom of choice. Due to self-imposed limitations, God can save persons legitimately only if he can persuade them of their need of salvation, the unavailability of divine grace, and the truth of the gospel. Under these limitations, election was the only method left to God under the conditions imposed by these necessities. Do you see what he's saying there? He basically argues from process of elimination. Basically saying, you know, if God is going to have a moral universe, then really um, God was limited to the doctrine of election because that was only God, that, that was the only method left for God to, 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 to do what he needed to do to make the universe moral. Question number five. Is God, through election, trying to bring as many or as few people as possible into his kingdom? And according to Mullins, God elects, quote, strategic men in history to spread the gospel. He chooses specific persons in strategic places at right moments in order to evangelize the most people possible. God's election pursues the course which will yield the largest results in the shortest time, inasmuch as God's electing grace has never been a narrowing, but always a widening principle. And question number six, does the process of election nullify God's offer of salvation to all? And Mullins came to the conclusion that Christ's death was intended for all and God desires to receive all who come to him on the basis of the death of Christ, but that God knows that not all will repent and believe. And so he says, quote, There is absolutely no barrier to the salvation of any save their own wills, for the final state of the wicked is their own self-wrought destiny. So here's what E.Y. Mullins does. It's, it's very slippery, and I don't think he, I'm not trying to impugn his motives at all. Because I, I mean, he's he's no longer alive, and we can't we can't ask him. And I don't think it's fair to do that. But what we can see here is that he struggled somewhat with the idea of the sovereignty of God in choosing some for salvation, and others passing by. And yet he knew that the scriptures taught that. And so he tried to reconcile human freedom with God's sovereignty. And I think he basically modified the view of Calvinism to really something that really doesn't make a lot of sense. That's really kind of wishy-washy. That's kind of, kind of mushy. And that set the trajectory in the 20s and 30s for, for the change. Now, the one that really popularized this was Walter Thomas Connor. Um, he was basically in the seminary at Southwestern Seminary, um, really from 1910 until 1948. 
And um, he addressed the doctrine of predestination in all six of his books on systematic theology. He, he wrote uh, a, a work called A System of Christian Doctrine. And so basically um, he's the one that says that um, God made each human creature to be a spiritual personality with the ability to reason, feel, and choose. This freedom underscores each person's power of self-determination. The human race used its freedom, however, to rebel against God, who in His love and mercy responded with a plan to save His fallen creation. The initiative in salvation forms the basis for the doctrine of election, which means, quote, God's love for us is a love of infinite wisdom. It did not move blindly. It planned eternally for our good. He believed that election depends upon God's sovereign choice, not on a person's foreseen belief. But he says non-election depends not on God's sovereign choice, but on a person's foreseen unbelief. And so really, he was one that, uh, again, tried to move the trajectory. But the one person who really changed the trajectory, I think, for the long haul, was Herschel Hobbes. Now, if you've been around Southern Baptist life, uh, Herschel Hobbes is a... um, is a revered figure among Southern Baptists. Um, he is Mr. Southern Baptist, especially in the 60s and 70s. He was a student at Southern Seminary. I think he learned directly under E.Y. Mullins and these professors who were going away from Calvinism. And basically, um, he, he was almost thoroughgoing Arminian. Um, but really, he was the one who um, taught and popularized uh, the corporate view of salvation. And so let me just give you some quotes from him, especially in his book, The Fundamentals. Quote, God knows who will be saved and who will be lost, but his foreknowledge does not mean that he has arbitrarily named some for heaven and others for hell. As powerful as God may be, His divine sovereignty can never cancel human freedom. An all-powerful sovereign God has in matters of the Spirit voluntarily limited Himself to the response of the free will of man. This is not an evidence of God's weakness, but of His power. Man can obey or rebel against God's will, but a sovereign God holds him responsible for his choices. This is a key statement that I think Leighton Flowers has has grabbed onto and others. Basically, they're saying that God, it's not a sign of weakness for God to limit himself, but it's a sign of God's power. God has limited himself in his sovereignty to the response of the free will of man. And so, basically, Herschel Hobbes began to argue that election refers more to God's plan of salvation and not to God's choice of individuals for salvation. And so, for example, um, when, and even when I was a youth growing up in the 80s, and we often, every year, I think we had January Bible study. And one, one year, we had, to, we had to study the Baptist faith and message. And this was back in, in late high school, early college, where I really wanted to understand what I believed. Because this was really during the height of the conservative resurgence, um, the moderate issue. The first semester of my um, college days, I went to Baylor University in Texas in 1990. 
Um, and it was so interesting because the question that you were asked was not when you met somebody for the first time was not what's your major. The question was, are you a moderate or a fundamentalist? And obviously, you, you know, Baylor University was the hotbed of the moderate movement. And I, I came from more of a fundamentalist Southern Baptist background and, and was walked into a world where I had no idea what was going on. And so I really began to study the Baptist faith and message. And the only, the only resource we had back then was the book by Herschel Hobbes, uh, The Baptist Faith and Message by Herschel Hobbes. And he talks about election and he talks about what it means uh, to be elect. And so... It's very interesting the words that he uses um, to talk about election, uh, because basically um, he talks about it being being a plan of salvation, not so much. Um, let me just give you some quotes from here because I think that it's interesting. He says this: um, election and never never appears in the Bible as mechanical or as blind destiny. It has to do with the God of love and with a man who's morally responsible. Election never appears as a violation of the human will. Two truths must be regarded in election. God's sovereignty and man's free will. In the abstract, God's sovereignty means that he can act as he wills without any outside counsel or permission. But in the concrete as taught in the Bible, God has placed certain limitations upon himself. In that sense, his sovereignty must be viewed as his power to act as he wills in keeping with his own laws and according to his known nature as righteous and love. Again, <laughs> this whole idea that, yes, God is sovereign, but we're going to redefine sovereignty. God is sovereign to do what he wants. God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. No plan of God can be thwarted. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. God elects according to the purpose of his will. And, and in the abstract, he says, yeah, in the abstract, you know, God is sovereignly can do whatever he wants. But in the concrete, the way it's taught in the Bible, God limits his sovereignty. God loves us so much, he limits his sovereignty so that we as humans can use our freedom of choice. And so it's interesting the way that he talks about election. Um, and he's going to talk about um, Ephesians 1. He says, Paul's most complete treatment of election, Ephesians 1, 3-13. Note the words, hath chosen and having predestinated in verses 4-5. through The former translates the Greek word for elect. And he goes on to say that. Um, let me just find here. Okay, here we go. Against this backdrop, it is well to note that in 11 verses, Paul used the phrase in Christ, or its equivalent 10 times. So God has chosen in the sphere of Christ. He elected that all who are in Christ shall be saved. In Christ is the boundary that God marked out beforehand, like, a building, like building a fence around a field. God did this in his sovereignty. In this act, he asked the counsel or permission of no one. All who are within the fence in Christ shall be saved. Man is free to choose whether or not he will be in Christ. This does not mean that man can boast of his salvation once he chooses Christ. It is the result of God's initiative and saving purpose. Man receives this inheritance because God marked out the boundaries of salvation beforehand according to the counsel of his own will. Thus it should be to the praise of the glory that man had hope beforehand in Christ. But at this point, Paul took care of man's free will. It is seen in the passage, verse 13, in whom also after you believed. 
Paul's readers heard the gospel of salvation that all who are in Christ shall be saved. They could have rejected it and remained in a lost condition, but they believed, quote, in Christ and thus were saved. That God knew beforehand who would believe is obvious, but as previously stated, foreknowledge of events does not cause it. God never violates human personality. He will not save a man against his will. He knocks at the door of the heart, but he will not force it open. However, to all who of their own wills will open the door, he enters and graciously saves them apart from man's own efforts or merits. It should be noted further to having elected a plan of salvation, God elected a people whereby that plan might be provided and propagated. And so uh, you can go on to say that basically what he's done is he's, he's given us as Southern Baptists the corporate view of election. God limits his sovereignty to the free will of people. God is a gentleman and knocks at the door of your heart and he will not violate your will. He, he, he really can't regenerate you without your permission. God elected a plan of salvation and the way that you get in the plan is you use your free will. And so once you use your free will to get in Christ, then you become one of the elect. And obviously you can't boast about that because God initiated it. And so he tries to balance God's sovereignty with human responsibility. But at the end of the day, basically what he's saying is God is so sovereign and loves us so much that he limits his sovereignty and really chooses a plan and it's really up to our free will to get into the plan and once we choose of our own free will to get into the plan then we become one of the elect the 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 election was the plan not individuals specifically that's the real key issue god elected a plan of salvation not god chose us in christ Now let's go back to the text in Ephesians. If Paul wanted to use that terminology, he could have very easily said, God chose a plan of salvation before the foundation of the world and the way to get into that plan is to trust Christ for salvation using your free will. But that's not what the text says. The text says God chose us, not the plan. God chose us. God chose individuals. God chose specific people. And remember the intimacy of that, of that middle ver- voice in the verb. God chose us for himself because it was of God's own interest to do so. When did he do it? Before the foundation of the world. Why did he do it? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. It was in love that he did this. He predestined us for adoption. And what was the basis or foundation for all of this? According to the purpose of his will. And so there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of debate. It's interesting how the trajectory of history has moved away from this whole idea of God's sovereignty. And and, and I guess I'm a little bothered that people are kind of using this, you know, God is sovereign, but he limits his sovereignty. That's not sovereignty. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say God limits his sovereignty because he values the free will of people. If anything, over and over again, you see God violating the will of people and doing what he wants to do according to the purpose of his will. So can we truly say, just by basic definition, that God is sovereign if he limits his sovereignty? That's not sovereignty if God limits it. Anytime God limits an attribute of himself, he ceases to have, and I get bothered by that. Basically, you're saying that God limits an attribute of himself. 
Would you say that about love? Would you say that about any other attribute of God? Well, God is love, but He limits His love. Well, you know, we, we would say that as far as there's different ways in which God loves, but, but, but an Arminian or a traditional Southern Baptist would never say that God limits His love or that God limits His grace. But when it comes to sovereignty, they're very quick to say, well, God will limit His sovereignty. I don't ever see in the Bible where there's a verse that says, God is sovereign, but He limits it. As a matter of fact, the burden of the text is on the fact that God does whatever He pleases. There are no limitations. He is the one that's counsel stands forever. He is the one whose purposes can't be thwarted. He's the one who says, my counsel shall stand. He's the one that says, I will do all things according to the purpose of my will. Not, I'm going to do all these things, but I'm going to limit myself. I'm going to limit myself by simply humans because I'm giving them free will. I don't think you see that in the scriptures. And so you need to be the determiner based upon how you understand the scriptures of which view you're going to land on. Um, We could have talked a whole lot more about unconditional election and other verses of scripture, other podcasts. I've dealt with John chapter 6. I've talked about Romans 9. But I wanted to address Ephesians 1 because I really wanted to talk about this move, this push within the traditional uh, non-Calvinistic Southern Baptist to, to not identify themselves with classical Arminianism, to not identify themselves with Reformed theology, but to argue for this third way of this corporate election, which I don't think does justice to the text. I don't think you can find corporate election in the text of Scripture. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. We're coming upon the the hour mark, and I don't want to go much longer than that. Um, But I do appreciate you listening to this podcast. Uh, Again, if you you would do me the favor and just give me feedback, I'd love to get, get feedback. Maybe you could email me. I can answer some questions on the podcast. You can go to my website, seancole.net. All my contact information is there. My email's there. My Twitter feed is there. My Facebook. Um, also, other podcasts, you can go there. Um, you can go on iTunes and give a review and rating um, if, if you've enjoyed this podcast. Let your friends or your pastor or other people know about this podcast if, if, if it's been beneficial to you. Um, again, I do this because I want to help not only just believers, but maybe you're a non-believer listening. Maybe you're an atheist or you're, a, you're somebody that's struggling with faith or you're, you're kind of checking out Christianity and you came across this podcast and that's why it's called Understanding Christianity. We want to help you understand the core truths of biblical Christianity. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. It's been a pleasure being on this podcast with you today. God bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. And until next time, which I don't know when that will be, hopefully soon, have a great day in the Lord.